As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. This is the first annual Memorial Day Champions League final review show. <laughs> Hurrah! We're also going to sneak in some bonus listener questions on today's show. And for the dozens of you who wrote in with the question, what on earth was Pep doing? We're going to cover that one in the main show. Don't worry. We might also answer those who wrote in asking if we can now call him Tommy Too Cool for School. Uh, spoiler alert, yes we can. Joining me today is a man who would never play a brand new, slightly weird formation in one of the most important games of his career. It's Taylor Rockwell. <laughs> I would not. I would be uh, terrified to do that. Then again, I'd be terrified to do anything, which is why I am not a top-level manager. Oh, just hiding in your little tortoise shell. Is that right, Taylor? I mean, that's the Mourinho approach, and it worked for him for a while, so why not? Let's go for it. Very true. He has had success in this competition, after all, with the tortoise shell approach. Joining Taylor and I is a man who's currently tied with Manchester City for Champions League wins. It's Joe Lowry. <laughs> yes, yes, I am, Ryan. Manchester City, don't you ever forget that we are equal in this one very small, very specific way. We are. M- many of us are, in fact. But you specifically, I would say. You're on you're an evil plane right now. An evil plane? Equal plane right now. And an evil plane. Oh I'm not special, but I'm going to pretend I am because that's how you chose to introduce me and I appreciate it. As always, Joseph. As always. <laughs> so the main event, obviously, is this weekend's Champions League final between Chelsea and Manchester City, with Chelsea taking a 1-0 win. This was the 29th Champions League final, the 66th, if we're going in old money, to the European Cup final. Before we get into it, gents, um, the pre-match song and dance with the VR and the Marshmallow, who I don't really know who that is because I'm yeah. old. What did we make of that? Uh, Joe, you're a young person. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't watch a second of anything that happened before the game kicked off. So, uh, Taylor, over to you about Marshmallow. 
Uh, I am going to echo Joe's sentiment in that I did not watch it either. <laughs> I wonder about that. Like, like there's there's much discussion about how we need better pregame coverage and postgame reviews. And I, I think I've just kind of stopped watching a lot of that, maybe because it has for so long been felt sort of like fluff and filler that wasn't necessary and a lot of times felt like they were tricking us and watching it by saying kickoff was at a certain time and we would tune in and then it would be the pregame show for half an hour. So I feel like I don't watch those things. Maybe I should, but no marshmallows for me on the day. Ryan, it sounds like you might have been alone if you watched that one. I did, but I was just confused. I was like, where's Pitbull? <laughs> Is Pitbull coming in now? <laughs> Is it time for Pitbull? That was the, my know. only question in my mind, but it was quite weird. It had this VR element to it. They were on the ocean in the middle of the Porto Stadium uh, at one point. It was quite strange, but uh, not as strange, I would say, as what Manchester City did in their setup. I feel like we should uh, obviously talk a lot about Chelsea and what they did right and what Thomas Tuchel did right, but perhaps the most appropriate place to go, gents, is to Manchester City, who, let's be honest, have probably been the favourites in this competition for the last, what, three seasons? Um, they've got to the final here. And then the old tinkering klaxon went off and it went off pretty loudly uh, with uh, Pep Guardiola uh, putting a very attacking side out, Taylor. No holding midfielder, no Rodri or Fernandinho. I had a look back. I think there's only one game uh, in the last 60 or so this season in which uh, one of those players didn't play. It was uh, mm. it was good to one in that position. It was a Champions League game against Olympiacos, which they won 3-0. Uh, this one is quite different, I would argue, to a Champions League group stage game against Olympiacos. So hmm. not having a defensive midfielder with your fullbacks against a team like Chelsea, that we know what they do. We know they counterattack. We know they've also got one of the best defensive midfielders on, on the planet, if not the best. So it feels quite odd to set up like that, Taylor. What was Pep thinking? Uh, first of all, yeah, I was very surprised by that one. I don't fully know, aside from that, I think he wanted to really try to take the game to Chelsea and I think keep possession maybe and not then give up opportunities for counterattacks high up the pitch. So maybe with Gundogan in there, with Fon on one side and Bernardo Silva on the other, you have the sort of quick passing triangle that he wanted. Maybe he didn't think Rodri could handle that possession aspect of things. Maybe he didn't think Fernandinho could play the full 90. But I'm really surprised that coming out of the uh, the league loss that Man City had to Chelsea a couple weeks ago, when they they went with the, I forget, oh, Kidology was what the announcers kept calling it mm. because he was mirroring Chelsea's shape. I was a big believer that he was going to use that in some way, that it would it would be City in a back three, or he would like learn some things from that experimentation and utilize that in this game. And weirdly, I guess what he learned is that, you know what, we need even fewer defenders than I thought in the first place. So <laughs> we don't need a back three. We need only two central defenders, and we don't need a holding midfielder. We need Gundogan, who's also our leading goal scorer, I believe, this season as the holding midfielder. And I do think that was a gamble. I think I can understand aspects of why he went for it, but I do think maybe if Fernandinho's there, just some of those counterattacking moments are put out. Maybe there's a yellow card for a professional foul, and then play doesn't develop a certain way. I don't think this was necessarily him overthinking it, but I do think that this was one of the explanations for why City didn't get the result and maybe got things wrong. Pep flippantly said after the game that Gundogan had played that position before, but yeah, he'd done it once this season against Olympiacos. Yeah. So why, why do it on this stage, I would argue? Joe, I'd say I'd never seen Pep decorate a Christmas tree in his home, but I imagine it gets that perfect stage and everyone's happy with it in the family. And then he just gets out a box of tinsel and throws some more baubles on and maybe turns the tree upside down. Uh, it seems like Pep had a very specific idea he was trying to pull off, Joe. And I mean... 
it's that that was puzzling to do it on this platform, was it not? Yeah, it it is, and I'm I'm torn. I'm kind of caught up two minds here between man, these were some some interesting changes in terms of the personnel, especially that Pat brought out. But at the same time, that's kind of his job, right? Is to set up his team in a way that he thinks will best fit them and best suit them for an important game. Every manager comes into games and and tweaks. Every manager comes into big games and sometimes has to make choices like this. And I'm not saying Pep had to make this swap for Gundogan over Fernandinho or for over Rodri. But I am saying that I, I can understand the motivation behind decisions like this. Taylor, you're talking about how City wanted to take the game to Chelsea, and I, I think that's absolutely why Gundogan is in this group. Why not, right? If you think you're going to have all this possession and you're going to smother the ball with your counterpressing and, and then you have this number six at the back, regardless of who it is, ideally, in a perfect world, that player's almost never coming into play anyway, defensively, with how you set up. And so, yeah, you have Gundogan in there, and, and the way City attacked and the way they set up in possession was in this 3-4-3 diamond shape with that, that diamond midfield. And so you have Gundogan, who played as the six, as the base of that diamond. Then you have Bernardo Silva on the right. You have Zinchenko tucking in from left back as that left central midfielder. And then you have Foden underneath Kevin De Bruyne. And so it's, it's Foden as the point of that diamond. And I mm. think it makes a lot of sense with what City were trying to do. But because of what happens on that goal, which I would argue Gundogan plays a role in, but there's a lot of blame to go around. And it maybe even starts with how Pep set up his press, not even up his personnel. I think it's hard to put too much blame on this one individual personnel swap and formation tweak when in reality, I think these are the kind of changes that get made fairly often from game to game. We just might not always notice them. I suppose I think... Go on, oh, sorry, Ryan. I just I wanted to to piggyback off something Joe said because it leads me to a question. Maybe Ryan, you were going to ask because I do want to talk about Chelsea at, at some point. We probably should, given that they won. But Fine. Joe, I think we both sort of focused on not playing a holding midfielder and the sort of defensive setup, the overall setup for Manchester City, and how that maybe factored in. But it is the case that City ended up having fewer shots, I believe fewer shots on target as well, uh, than Chelsea did. And so for a lineup that seemed like it was more focused on keeping possession, creating opportunities, for them to have not done that as much, do you blame like a significant percentage of that on City's approach and the setup? Or do you put most of that with credit to Chelsea for the way they set up and defended? For me, I, I tried to answer this exact question as I went back through and rewatched the first half. For me, it's this is a classic things-can-be-two-things situation because cool. Chelsea, with how they defended, they're so compact, they're so well-disciplined, and they were incredibly smart with their on-ball pressure, even their off-ball pressure in this game, moving and flowing out of that 5-2-3 defensive shape, and it was looking like a 5-1-4 at times. It was fluid, and they moved so, so well. But at the same time, Manchester City, I don't think, did a very good job of targeting the weak points in Chelsea's defensive shape, getting outside yeah. the, the midfield two of, of Jorginho and Conte, getting in behind. They really only tried to get in behind once or twice in that first half with Ederson playing a nice long ball over the top to Sterling, and then they just didn't really go back to that after the first 10 minutes. They didn't do an excellent job of engaging Chelsea's front line and, and drawing players in to then uh, create space and create overloads in midfield. None of that was really there, which is both a, a fault for Man City, but, man, a real credit to how Chelsea approached this game without the ball. So Pep Guardiola, Pep Guardiola before this game, um, Joe, was talking about Raheem Sterling and his inclusion, justifying it, which is another perhaps controversial inclusion in the starting eleven. He said, if we want a chance to win, we have to attack. Of course you have to defend, but our way is to attack. The second half, I'm sure, will be pretty different to the beginning. They play a system uh, five at the back. We need specific players. So that's how Pep was rationalising the decisions he's made. But then, as Taylor says... 
Man City had less XG in this game. They had 0.52 XG in this game than any other game this season. So something went wrong there. Do we attribute that to the system? Do we attribute that to the personnel up top? And even someone like Kevin De Bruyne, who before he went off, wasn't fulfilling the false nine role maybe as well as he has done previously. I don't think it's the system, right? Because I think back to what Chelsea have done over, or what Manchester City have done, excuse me, over the course of this season and really under Pep, the same principles that we normally see from them, I think were there in this game. And, and Taylor, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I saw width, right? I saw Riyad Mahrez wide on the right side. I saw Raheem Sterling wide on the left side. I saw tons of numbers between the lines with Zinchenko and Bernardo Silva, Kevin De Bruyne, Phil Foden. I saw those players moving in and out of space. I mean, I saw this ball-dominant team, especially they come out of this game in the first half. They're trying to take it to Chelsea. They're trying to own the ball and control it and play into dangerous spaces but then they run into this absolute brick wall that is Chelsea's defensive structure, and they struggle. And that's why, because of all the, the little minute problems that I mentioned just a minute ago in response to Taylor, I think, I think all those things, not engaging defenders, not trying to get in behind, not trying to pull players out and really run into those gaps, those issues, those micro issues, I think were the problem for Manchester City rather than a macro formation alignment or even, even how they chose to set up in this game and how they chose to play. There weren't a ton of real meaningful wrinkles, I didn't think, in terms of their possession play. Joe, I think I think the micro like moments idea makes a lot of sense to me because I've used this analogy before, but I'm going to use it again. It comes from Top Chef, uh, which I have not <laughs> watched in like ten seasons, but I will remember when I did slavishly watch it. Uh, Tom Calicchio talking, one of the judges, talking about near the end of the show. It really, the way they edit it, it seems like there are clear-cut winners and losers, but he was saying in actuality, it's like sometimes maybe this person oversalted slightly, and that's the difference. And that's what this game felt like a little bit, in that it's going to be, make you're going to make or break the performance on little tiny moments and whether or not you're able to deal with those and how you're able to deal with them or prevent them from occurring. And I think Chelsea set up that Joe already mentioned, that kind of 5-2-3, and then sometimes even like a 5-1-4 does a really good job of slowing Manchester City down and making yeah. it really difficult for them to get into a good possession rhythm 20 yards from goal with Chelsea having to kind of scramble a little bit. What kept happening that I saw was Chelsea setting up with that sort of front line of defenders that blocked off a bunch of different passing options, a bunch of different passing lanes, and really did sort of force Manchester City wide. Sometimes maybe they could lift it over the top and find somebody in space, but Chelsea would then just collapse, put the people where they needed to be, and essentially invite Manchester City to try to pull them apart. And if you're never in a position where you're making that defender scramble, you're making that team have to transition backwards really fast on the fly and improvise a defense, you are effectively playing into their hands and making it a more comfortable game. And then I think as Chelsea get the goal and then City start chasing, the more Chelsea don't really bend, don't even have to bend, certainly don't have to break, there starts to be that frustration, those nerves, that anxiety. Is this another one that we're not going to end up getting the result for? And I think Chelsea's defensive approach was so solid and so just known and studied and learned and practiced that I think Chelsea came up against an immovable object and they ended up, or excuse me, Man City did, and they ended up, I guess, being the ones who had to move. Yeah, and we must pour praise on Chelsea, and we will do shortly, but I'm just going to come back to Pep Guardiola and his setup once again. Sure. And I think one of the most disappointing things for me, gents, was the sort of the in-game management and the substitutions and things like that. Have, have either of you ever driven a boat? 
I'll ask you that first. <laughs> yes, poorly. Right. I have not. No. <laughs> poorly is the way it goes for people who've generally driven yep. a boat for the first time because you tend to mm. overcorrect. Because if Correct. you're going one way, you pull the steering wheel or the, the, you know whatever they call it on a boat the other way, and then because yeah. it's quite slow to react, you end up in the reeds. You end up on the bank. <laughs> so that was how I kind of felt Pep, Godo- Pep Guardiola was going with his sort of in-game changes, particularly with the substitutions. Uh, when Kevin De Bruyne has unfortunately has to come off for, from a fairly cynical challenge from Antonio Rudiger, we can talk about that later. But Gabriel Jesus comes on. Not Sergio Aguero, it's Gabi Jesus who comes on in his place. Then we've got um, Chelsea, uh, sorry, Man City chasing a game, trying to chase a goal back, and they take off Bernardo for Fernandinho, which I'm, I'm say what you want about wanting to steady the ship to get back to boating analogies, but um, that seems curious when you're trying to chase a goal. And then we've got Aguero coming on later on in the game. It just seemed like there was lots of odd choices going on. The, the, the captain's armband changed hands three times. One of those, obviously, with De Bruyne having to take it off through injury, but it just seemed like... He didn't really, he was trying to sort of adjust and overcorrect as things were going on, and it wasn't quite successful. We had sort of a four, would you call it a four, two, 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 Joe, at the end of this? By the time, by the time Pep's been mid game tinkering, it just felt like he <laughs> didn't really, his, his in game planning wasn't top level. Does that make sense? No, it does. And I guess I just struggle. Maybe I, I'm not trying to sympathize overly here with Pepper or with this team because I don't think they played very well and I don't think they deserve to win this game. That all goes to Chelsea. But man, I don't know what you're supposed to do really at this point. And this is why I'm not coaching in a Champions League final because the two, two of the subs that he brings, bringing on Gabriel Jesus and Sergio Aguero, like you said, Ryan, those are the two players who started up top for Man City in their game against Chelsea back in May 8th, their last matchup against Chelsea, and that was in the league. I think there's a reason for that, right? You get those guys on, they have familiarity playing with each other. They have familiarity playing up against the exact back line at this point that was in, or the exact back three, I guess, that was in in this game with Christensen then coming in for Thiago Silva after Silva has to come off in the first half. Then you have Rudiger on one side, Azpilicueta. That was the back three from the last time these two teams met. So there is familiarity there, both in terms of the last month and way before that with these players. But man, either way, no matter how you slice it, no matter what you change, unless you overly uh, overhaul and, and drastically change your team's approach you're still running up against the same block you're still mm. running up against the same back line and the midfielders running in front of it in the front line blocking off passing angles I think I honestly think the game was done for for Manchester City by the time midway through the second half happened I think they were right. done I don't think they had a way to change in game what probably needed to be some sort of really insightful change way before this game even happened or something that changed early on in the first half to allow for more penetration in behind or getting into the box. And I don't think any of those things were likely to happen regardless of what subs were made. Well, that, Joe, that's damning in itself, isn't it? That they didn't have, they didn't have the, the tools to make the changes necessary. And I think the most, maybe the most stunning example of that for me was injury time. We had seven minutes of injury time during which we just watched Man City lumping balls forward, putting crosses into the box for players who are much smaller than the Chelsea defenders who were just easily batting them away. Kyle Walker, I think it was three long throws I counted him do. Taylor, have you ever seen a Man City side resort to that, let alone in this calibre of competition, but them just lumping it and doing sort of, I'm going to evoke Wimbledon here because I have to every show, 90s-style Wimbledon play, just long balls and all this hopeful stuff that even at the worst of times you wouldn't really expect Man City to do. No, I mean, I think I honestly think Joe hit it on the head there, that it's his substitutions, I think his approach as the game went on was to try to put Manchester City in more familiar positions and sort of 
embrace the idea of, you guys have been here before, you know how to play, you know the run Aguero is going to make when he comes on. You know how Jesus wants to hold this ball up, you know how to play off of that. Like I think he was trying to create familiarity to then give City players the motivation to go find a way to get a goal, to hopefully get two goals. And I think that is where you see some of those sort of emotional, we're going for the long throw, we're going for the crosses. It's just trying to make something happen. It's throwing paint at a wall and seeing what sticks because, again, to reiterate what Joe said, I think his approach was designed to make Chelsea uncomfortable, his being Pep's. I think he was trying to find a way to create vulnerability in that Chelsea defense in the way they were set up because he knew how they were going to set up. We had a pretty good idea how they were going to set up. And I think he did. He wasn't able to do that. And so once you sort of are then having to be the one to try to figure things out, but you're, you're again kind of having to go back to the drawing board instead of like, okay, now we've tinkered, we've seen, there is this vulnerability and we can exploit that. I feel like he was basically having to develop a new game plan uh, while still incorporating the old game plan all at once at halftime. And I think if you are a City fan, that is not the position you want to be in. If you are a Chelsea fan or a Chelsea manager, that is precisely the position you want to be in. Yeah, and Tommy Tuchel for school certainly put himself in the position he wanted to be in throughout this game. We're going to be talking about Chelsea and exactly what they did right very shortly. We're also going to visit our very specific predictions, which we made in the preview show. Fun times ahead after these short commercial messages. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are back. We are talking Chelsea and their victory in the Champions League final. This one rather different from the victory they had in 2012, by the way, in that it was deserved most of the way through, we could say. I think um, Thomas Tuchel has a very good record against Pep Guardiola now. Three times he's beaten him in the last, is it two months now? Um, It's amazing that they've come into this game having lost Chelsea uh, three of their last four matches. Joe, what, what exactly did Thomas Tuchel do here? It seems like... He played the perfect game. It seems like he managed to find the channels. He he found the ways through. Uh, Maybe we can talk about the way that Timo Werner was played in this one. Almost, could you say, as a decoy, certainly for the goal. Um, Very interesting stuff from Tommy Tuchel for school, Joe. Yeah, I mean, first of all, great nickname. Uh, I think we should make that canon as quickly as possible. That is just (laughs) top-notch work. Yeah, I think think Tuchel got... Almost, I, I want to say everything right, but I'm going to say almost everything right just so I have a, a layer of protection over me. Thomas Tuchel got this game plan so right in this game. The way the team defended, and we've already kind of talked about that, but it bears repeating just because of how darn good it was. They shifted so well, they pressured so well in that 5-2-3 block, 
anytime Chelsea would try to play the ball between the lines, they had stability at the back, but but they still were aggressive in how they pressed. It was Thiago Silva starting as that center center back, and then it was Rudiger and Aspilicueta flanking him on his left and on his right side. And those two players, especially Rudiger and Aspilicueta, had license to step out. And, and whether that player that they were stepping to was about to be on the ball or whether they were just simply a threat between the lines, Tuchel allowed those players to say or, or to go, and he told them go step out, pressure them, don't let them play here. And that's great because you can do that as long as there's no runner in behind and as long as you're getting pressure on the ball as it's coming in. And and Chelsea were able to defend against all of City's attempts to do that. And I would argue there could have been more attempts to do that. But the defensive game plan was spot on in attacking wise. Yeah, Ryan, I think you said it really well. Timo Werner worked as a decoy in this game, making those runs that he makes so often. And it is offside a lot, but that's a key part of creating space for Chelsea's other front runners. And they did that really expertly along with their play down the left side that we saw on the goal and then on several sequences leading up to the goal in the first half. Taylor, thoughts on Chelsea's front line there? We touched on it there with the, with the role of Timo Werner. Mason Mountain and Kai Havertz seemed to have a pretty good bonnet in this too. And there was a, uh, a guy from the United States who came on at some point as well? Yeah, there was. Yeah, there was. It's an exciting moment. I'm very happy <laughs> about that still. Uh, yeah, I, I think th- this is kind of what I thought they would do. I thought we would see Kai Havertz instead of Christian Pulisic. I knew we would see Mason Mount. I thought maybe we would see Havertz more central because he does have more of that physical presence. But I think instead what we got was that entire front three pretty central and sort of able to combine, able to basically win the knockdown ball, the 50-50 ball after the loose ball if there was one played long. But then, uh, to the point you both have already made, it was also with Timo Werner stretching the defense, pushing City's defenders back and making those darting runs, it then did allow for people to make those runs underneath or to shadow those runs and to give him a bit more support than I think they've had at other points in other games. And I thought that was really, really smart. I thought Thomas Tuchel backing his team to go in and and play a very difficult system and do it well, that is a level of trust that I think you can only have if you've spent a lot of time with your players and that we know Thomas Tuchel has not been able to because he's a midseason appointment makes it all the more surprising because if you're trusting your players to build out against a team that you know is going to be intense in their press and not just intense but really, really disciplined and organized, they're... You, I would forgive him for being like, you know what, in this game, if in doubt, just kick it out. Like, we don't want to deal with this. Like, go the old school route. And instead, I mean, the goal comes from Mendy, a goalkeeper they brought in because they didn't like what Kepa brought to the table in a couple different ways, including his distribution. Mendy with a perfect ball lifted over the top, and then it's the outlet, the wide outlet Ben Chilwell, with a really great first-time, like, sort of settle pass with his, I think it's his right foot somehow, that he plays into Mason Mount and away Chelsea go. But that level of spreading your players out while still trying to pass short and then occasionally playing into the channels, it's just such a risky approach because one wrong pass, one misplaced touch, and you are wide open for a counterattack. So Mm. it says how much work Chelsea have done to be able to do this. It shows how much faith I think Tuchel has in his players. And then it shows those players' ability to execute. Ben Showell, chief among them as an outlet, but Reese James on the far side as well, able to do that when the situation required. Conte and Jorginho holding it down in the middle, which is what we would have expected, but still, it was players that we expected to have big games having big games and players that we were unsure about or how they would feature in also having big games I mean that that is uh, an excellent point Taylor and um, you know full credit to Chelsea for, for setting up in that manner but they are helped in some ways by the fact that you know one incisive pass from James or Chilwell or any of the middle yep. four and they're getting they're giving their front line a one-on-one with the defense because there was no yep. one helping the defense out for Man City 
not so much. <laughs> yeah, there was, there was uh, I think it was, The Athletic has a good breakdown of some of the tactics of this game. One key point being that, yeah, when Ben, ben Showell was advancing forward, which was pretty frequently, uh, uh, Riyad Mahrez, who's the right, right-sided attacker, as Joe pointed out, I think with... Uh, with Sterling on the far side, they were, they were very spread. They were on, on on the far touchline, and I think they were meant to stay forward and try to pin Chelsea back. But that meant Mares especially was not as diligent in tracking back and helping out with the defense. And so Chelsea, when they would send Ben Chilwell forward, usually had him as an option wide and pretty open on the left. And then if they wanted to put on a big switch, they had the same in Reese James on the right because Sterling, I think when he would drop back, tended to be a little bit more central. So I think you're right, Joe, that you didn't get that level of defensive dedication, I think because that wasn't a feature of the City game plan. I think it was a fallback plan if they needed it to be, but I think a lot of their game plan was rooted in take the game to Chelsea, make them uncomfortable, put them on their heels, put them inside their box, and then eventually we'll find a way to get a goal. And instead, it was Chelsea who got the goal and City who did not. Well, I I think just to add on that quickly, Manchester City's biggest issue in this game, I don't think, was with their offensive play or even with the fact that they didn't have a holding midfielder. I think it was with their press. Taylor, you just kind of detailed that with, with so much space being allotted to Ben Chilwell on that left side. I read a great article, and shoot, I'm trying to find it in my notes, and I'll do my best to find it uh, to give credit to the guy who wrote it. But he, he made this point. Here it is, Ahmed Walid. Uh, Ahmed Walid. He had a great article breaking down City's inability to contain Chelsea high up the field. With the way they pressed in that 4-3-3, there was no one really to deal with the, the wingbacks in between Manchester City's wingers and in between their fullbacks. So if you think about just that right side, Chilwell could just hang out in that pocket between Mares, who was ahead of him, and between Kyle Walker, who was behind him. And on this goal for Kai Havertz, Kyle Walker's kind of caught of two minds because he can't step quickly enough to Ben Chilwell, and he also doesn't know whether he needs to deal with Mason Mount. And then John Stones doesn't step and pressure Mason Mount quickly enough, and it's just a domino effect from there that results in Kai Havertz being in acres of space in front of Zinchenko, which is a whole other issue for Zinchenko. There's, there's so many different elements to this, and it all starts with the fact that every time City, every time Chelsea wanted to play out, they had a free man on that side in Ben Chilwell, not just on the goal, but two more times in the three minutes leading up to that goal. Once in the 40th minute, once in the 41st minute, and then in the 42nd minute on the actual goal sequence, Chilwell was open on that weak side over and over and over again, and City couldn't contain it consistently enough to actually stop that threat. To go back to the uh, top chef fine margins idea, gents, it did seem certainly in the first 20 minutes that you know City were up for this one. And there were several moments where Chelsea had to make some last-ditch defensive tackles to sort of uh, limit limit them. I remember Rudiger, I think, uh, put an excellent challenge in on Foden at one point um, to deny a chance. Yeah. So there was yeah. Reese James did it at least a couple of times. Uh, it, it seemed like those were the kind of margins we were talking about there, some excellent last-ditch stuff. Uh, so that's something to consider. But also... It just the way that Chelsea took control of the game. And maybe that's through someone who's getting a lot of praise, deservedly so. It's N'Golo Kante in the middle of the field, who um, I looked up his stats. They don't look incredible. He had three tackles. He won four aerial duels, although four aerial duels makes him the person who won the most aerial duels, despite being the <laughs> shortest person on the field, which is obscene. But uh, maybe we can, Joe, give, give, give some love to Kante as well here because of the, the way he sort of ran this game. And he's, he's uh, he, there's, there's Ballon d'Or conversations now aren't there? there there probably shouldn't be as good as N'Golo Kante is I, I, man that's that's a tough way to intro this conversation because Kante was great <laughs> in this but I, I don't think 
I don't think he should win the Ballon d'Or after after this season in general. But someone can fight me about that later, I guess. I, I think the, the internet will he, fight you. <laughs> that's fine. I can take it. The way yeah, that Joe, Conte, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna help I'm gonna help Joe out here, and I'm gonna say okay. if if he does. And it, I, I feel strongly that, like, I would be totally okay if he did, but Joe is right. I don't think it would be necessarily for one season's work. I feel like it would be giving, like, Al Pacino the Oscar for, I think, Son of a Woman, because it was sort of like, look, we know we should have given you an Oscar before. We failed to do that. So this is your sort of lifetime achievement award. I think Scorsese, Scorsese for the got the same thing as with well. the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And so I really, like, like, plenty of people have pointed out Everything that N'Golo Kante has done, uh, winning the Premier League with two different teams, winning the World Cup, now winning the Champions League. Uh, I think he, maybe for like all of that work, and then his performance in this game and other times this season, deserves it. But I think it would be like a kind of lifetime achievement award aspect to it. That's where I am with that one. Yes, yeah, Taylor, thank you for saving me. I think if we can <laughs> rename the Ballon d'Or to whatever Lifetime Achievement Award is in Spanish, that would be much more appropriate. Um, but the way the way that Conte moves in that midfield is so huge, especially in games where Chelsea yeah. aren't going to be the aren't going to be the protagonists, right? They were never going to come out here and dominate the ball in the way that Manchester City were. That just wasn't going to happen. And so it's it's brilliant to have Conte in over now a healthy Kovacic in midfield. You want to have Conte's ability to cover ground, especially sometimes because Jorginho needs that cover. I thought Jorginho did a great job in this game moving and stepping to pressure, but he's not the most mobile guy out there. I, I don't think he can cover the level of ground that even a, a Kovacic can so you have Conte to cover, then you couple that with the center back stepping into midfield, the front line denying space into midfield in the first place, and you have this well-oiled defensive machine that a lot of times does center around everything that Conte does in the middle. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Well, um, another highlight of this game, by the way, for me was the Ch- the very clear sound of the Chelsea fans in the stadium singing, um, your support is fornicating poop towards the uh, Man City fans who were in attendance, uh, which <laughs> that's very much canon in the Premier League for that kind of behaviour to be going on. But it was very loud on the uh, on the comms. I did enjoy that. Why don't we um, step back? Also, oh, one more thing I should mention, by the way, is the kits. We all know the reason Chelsea won this. Uh, in the FA Cup final and in the Women's Champions League final, they were wearing next season's kit with a little yellow streak down it. They reverted back to the current season's kits for this one. I don't think it's a coincidence that they won. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they can that new kit, frankly, because it's <laughs> they lost two finals in it and they won the one where they abandoned it. What do you think, Taylor? They're gonna they're gonna uh, abandon the millions of dollars they've put into that new kit. I mean, I think they obviously should, and I think you're onto something, Ryan. I also think while we're assigning uh, credit where maybe it's not due, I, I think also Christian Pulisic deserves most of the credit, even though he wasn't on the field for the goal. <laughs> I think uh, he was just such an intimidating presence on the sideline that I think City had to worry about him, and maybe that's why they were distracted uh, for their goal. I also think he did he did a fine job when he came on. Much has been made of of the miss, but I think there are that's a much more challenging shot yeah. that I think people people want to give credit to, if that makes sense. Uh, and, and, it's, and it is the type, like, not trying to say, like, Timo Werner misses that all the time. But I think it is a thing where on this show we have tried, <laughs> some of us more so than Ryan, uh, <laughs> have tried to give credit to Timo Werner for what he brings to the team. And I think his runs uh, in this game do open up space. I think the goal comes from him making that diagonal run, opening up space in the middle for then Kai Havertz to run into. It's nothing brilliant from Werner, but it's just good hard work. It's good hard running. It's not really giving up. And I think Pulisic comes on and does the same, works very hard, is an effective outlet, 
could have scored, certainly, but that he didn't doesn't bum me out so much. But I think between Pulisic and uh, the re- reverting to the classic jerseys, I think you're right, Ryan. I think those are the two main reasons for why Chelsea got the result. The pull quote there from you, Taylor, is, it's nothing brilliant from Werner, which is very much surmises my opinion of him. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I, did, I do think if Christian Pulisic would have scored that goal that he missed, then the internet might still be out now from the explosions yep. it would have caused yep. on US yep. soccer Twitter. So uh, I, I, in a way, I'm glad it didn't happen but also very glad for Christian Pulisic for his role he did play. Why don't we visit our very specific predictions that we made in the preview show, gents? I went, I'll go first. Um, I made a fairly outlandish prediction that um, Chelsea would win 3-0 and Man City wouldn't be up for it. They wouldn't be competitive because of the aforementioned stuff about, you know, they, they, they were celebrating the league. They were mourning the loss of Sergio Aguero. They didn't look like they were in the right headspace. And I'm taking partial credit for my prediction because of that, because... If you look at the second half of this game, I d- I d- there wasn't a moment where I felt Man City are going to do this. They're going to come back. Even when you got the late Riyamaris chance and, and some, some fine margin stuff going on, it didn't feel like this was theirs for the taking. And that you can call that the setup, you can call that whatever. But the headline here is they weren't quite set up for glory here. And I, for that reason, I'm going to pat myself very hard on the back, Taylor. What do you make of that? I think you should. I, I really do. Because I, I think I definitely bought into the idea that Chelsea... Were, had had a strong season but would get found out in this game that Manchester City would would be Manchester City and that this was going to be the year Pep was finally going to win the Champions League with them and, and would sort of cement that legacy. And I think I bought into that pretty hard. Then, Ryan, you sort of pointed out that there, there are reasons not to. And a friend of mine messaged me, I think, the morning of the game to say, like, what? Like, didn't Chelsea just beat them? Because he was showing me the betting odds, which were insanely in favor of Manchester City winning in, re- in regulation. Uh, uh, Chelsea were decidedly not favorites. And I think it, there was a lot of hype and there was a lot of narrative building around the idea that Manchester City are just this juggernaut that will eventually win and it has to be now. And credit to Tuchel and plucky Chelsea. And I think I definitely furthered that narrative as well. So credit to Ryan criticism to me because I think that that was maybe part of where some of the the kind of complacency if you want to call it that from Manchester City came to be was maybe there's a little bit of an expectation I don't think players ever go in thinking we've got this in the bag but I think there can be a confidence that if that confidence is exposed as being maybe misplaced or maybe too great then suddenly if you have to kind of face the reality you can be in a bit of a panic, be in a little bit of a scrambling mode, and I think then you're no longer sort of having the motivation, having the ability to take the game to your opponent. And I think that goes a long way towards explaining why Chelsea looked so calm and competent mm. in defense, on the ball, when attacking, and Manchester City, I think, just looked a little bit listless at times. Well, they also look calm and competent because um, Thomas Tuchel can beat any manager except Sam Allardyce, which is something we've also established <laughs> this season. Sam is his kryptonite. Uh, Joe, um, let's see, what were your specific, very specific predictions and how did they unfold? So I was a strong over three on my uh, on my VSPs here. <laughs> very, very strong outing from me. I'm really proud of how it went down. My first one for City was that Gunawan and De Bruyne were going to have a little passing combination that led to a goal. My reasoning being they both usually play on the left side of City's possession shape. I thought City were going to have a lot of the ball. I thought they were going to threaten more than they did. None of that stuff happened. They didn't play on the left side. De Bruyne was the nine. Gundogan was the six. They didn't really come into contact with each other much at all. And uh, that went down in flames. So that's 0 for 1. 0 for 2 was uh, <laughs> Christian Pulisic will draw at least five fouls. That did not happen. 
Uh, I don't remember. Shoot, I, I can't find right on my notes right now how many he drew. But my reasoning behind that one was he'd come on. Chelsea might be down. It might be level. And uh, he'd, he'd cause problems. He'd be this electric presence. And he just didn't need to be when he came off the bench. So that's 0 for 2. And then my 0 for 3 uh, is that we were going to see at least two noticeable tactical adjustments in the first half. I didn't notice them, so therefore I cannot take credit for it. I could make up something here, and I think I'd be able to get away with it, but I'm going to choose the honorable route. Okay, I'll take, I'll take one. Does that mean I get half a point, Taylor? Yeah, I think so. There's, there's the moment in the 26th minute when Pep, uh, the mic caught it, so the commentators had to point it out. Pep screamed at Phil Foden to go further forward mm-hmm. and then allow Kevin De Bruyne to drop in and be more on the ball. I think that was, at times, a temporary thing. They would kind of rotate back to Kevin De Bruyne leading the line. But I think that interplay and that it was expected to be more automatic, which is why Pep was screaming at Phil Foden, because Kevin De Bruyne dropped in and Phil Foden stayed where he was. Uh, I think once that yelling happened, it became a more regular occurrence. So I think that was an adjustment uh, that did set up Kevin De Bruyne to have more influence. Not saying he did, but I think that was an adjustment. So I think, yeah, you get a half point. Half a point. I have just as many points as Ryan. Ha. Suck it. Yes. <laughs> We're both level on points and uh, Champions League wins along with Manchester City so far. <laughs> Taylor, your VSPs, how did they shake out? Uh, somewhat better. Somewhat better. I would say I had Mason Mount as being the most fouled player, I think, of any team, but certainly for Chelsea. He was not. It was Kai Havertz. Uh, Mason Mount had one foul suffered. Christian Pulisic, I'm sad to tell you, Joe, had zero. Yeah. Uh, at least according to the to uh, who scored is where I am right now. So uh, no points for me on that one. I did not track Timo Werner's offside, but I thought he would be offside uh, multiple times. Oh, I can tell you right now, he was offside twice. I said he'd be offside at least three times. So, but not within the the first 20 minutes or so, right? I think that was a new record. <laughs> well, and Taylor, I will say, even though you didn't get that prediction right, you accomplished the exact goal of what these are supposed to do, right? You talked about how Timo Werner likes to move off the ball, and we saw that on the goal sequence. We saw that so many other times in the first 10, 15, 20, 30, 45 minutes. He did it over and over again, and that's a huge part of what Too, too Cool for School, did I do it right, Ryan, is trying to do <laughs> with this attacking setup. So, I'm not going to give you any points because mm-hmm. I, I want to like do well in this competition that we're just now making up. But uh, I, that was a good prediction from you regardless. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I do have bad news for you, which is that I did get one of my predictions because I did have a yellow to yeah. Antonio Rudiger, and that did end up happening. Obviously, it leads to Kevin De Bruyne having to be substituted and, I believe, breaking his face in two different places. Uh, and it was sort of what I expected, which was a, a cynical yellow, a cynical foul born of having to try to make a play on a ball. Uh, and I did have one out of box. I think I wrote clearance, so I can't really take the full points there. But I had one. I wanted to say one out of box moment for Adairson, and it feels like that would have been points for, for uh, Chelsea's goal. But instead, I think I had clearance, so I can't take too much credit for that one. Wasn't, uh, wasn't your prediction about him setting up a goal rather than trying to clear a goal going into his own net? No, I think it was it was rooted in that they were basically going to play a high line. Uh, Chelsea were going to try to bypass that with Timo Werner, which meant that Adairson would have to be off his line early and often to make sure that there weren't any sort of 1v1 situations. Didn't really end up happening. And in the end, he kind of did, yes, assist Chelsea's goal, so to speak. He did, yeah. He definitely slowed down the Havertz ball. I think, uh, I think uh, a centre-back was... I think Diaz was coming back to claim that one uh, if, if uh, Edison hadn't played his part in that goal. But that's another story for another time, I suppose. I will say, by the way, if it gets me more than half a point, I will state for the record that I think when Chelsea beat Porto, or went, went past Porto, I did very much say on this show that they're going to win this competition because that's how life treats yep. us. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if I get any more credit for that. 
like, please give me credit. I want some credit. Please give me credit. <laughs> I, think um, you, I think you deserve credit because in that moment, I remember thinking, like, you are a crazy person. Yep, that is I not going that to happen. Chelsea would not go that much further in this competition because the wheels have to fall off at some point. Uh, and so I guess we look to next season for that one. Ah, you see, I know life's unfair, and I knew it then, and I know it now. So there you go. That's why. Uh, Chelsea, congratulations uh, for your latest Champions League win. I think that wraps up our review of the final. Gents, we're going to come back in a second and take on a couple very interesting listener questions. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we have returned and we come bearing listener questions. The first one here is from Matt Koss, not Matt Goss from the band Bross. Cool, that rhymes. It's Matt Koss. Imagine a World Cup group station area where the two teams just need to tie and both will make it through to the next round. However, if one wins and one loses, a third team will make it through instead if they win their match. What stops the two teams from simply wasting the 90 minutes, passing and dribbling until they get the tie? Is it respect? Is it fan backlash? Is there a FIFA rule? If it's a rule, how can it be proven? This is a solid question from Matt. And I'll start off proceedings, gents, by saying this scenario has happened. And it, it happened sure has. very much in the last World Cup in 2018. If you uh, uh, paid attention to Denmark's game against France, uh, both teams in Group C, Group C consisted of France, Peru and Australia and Denmark. Uh, Denmark and France only needed a draw. And they only needed, both only needed a point to get through, I should say. Uh, Peru uh, could have gone through if, uh, even if they got a big win over Australia, but they did not. Basically, this game was, I've, I think I've got the quote from The Guardian, uh, one of the worst games of football it's ever been my displeasure to watch, said The Guardian live blog, for a game which um, uh, the Danish manager may have defended too much because he got what he wanted, which was a draw. That's what Didier Deschamps said after the game. We tried to get a win, said Deschamps after this game, which finished nil-nil and was described as the worst game ever. Uh, <laughs> and France didn't really try and get a win, though, it didn't seem. Kylian Mbappe didn't even start this game. So to, to my early answer to the question here is, yes, it has very much happened. There was a game in which this scenario very much played out on the World Cup stage, and basically nothing was done about it, Taylor? Yeah, and I think we've we've had instances like this in the past. There's the disgrace of Hihon, I think is what the nickname is, for yep. the game between Germany and Austria, where it was sort of, I think Germany winning by a certain amount would send both of them through, and that's exactly how that game went down. And once that scoreline was reached, there was 
clear contentment on both sides <laughs> to not really press, not really do that much, but just kind of keep the ball moving, play that game out. I think that's where we then move to simultaneous kickoffs to try to limit how much you could do that, how much you could know in any given moment. But we do still have, Ryan, to your point, these sorts of instances. And it's never, I think, if you went as far as to agree beforehand, if there were a clear conversation, if there were a documented conversation, then you are sort of getting into, if not match-fixing, then something match-fixing adjacent. Ooh, that's hard to say. Uh, And so I, I think a lot of it comes down to there can be a sort of complacency from both teams and I think that's what we had in this last World Mm. Cup I don't think it's necessarily an agreement I don't think it's a thing that both teams are trying to kind of exploit but I think if you know hey a draw kind of benefits us both maybe you're you're just not going to have that next level edge that next level energy to go out and find a way to win that you might otherwise need yeah to Matt's question of why maybe it doesn't happen more or why I think it's maybe not as big of a concern it's just that you can't really rely on that. You can't trust the other team to not try to get a goal. And if they do, then you've got to try to get one if you're playing for that draw. And it's not like they're just going to like stand aside and let you score. So I think the reality is that the game is still just it's, it's uncertain, it's unknown, it's, it's unpredictable. And so you can't necessarily sit back and say, like, neither one of us needs this, no thank you. I think you can get those moments, but they're so obvious that it becomes a very maligned moment, a very maligned game, and people get very angry. And so I think that also public perception, I think, plays a big role in why we don't get more of that. Well, public perception was very negative on this game. I mentioned the France-Denmark one. The Russians very unhappy watching this game unfold. They booed very loudly at the end. Uh, The report on the UEFA website said that France, for their part, looked largely uninspired. That's the same France that Didier Champs said tried to get a win. Uh, I like your phrase, by the way, um, match fixing adjacent, which I believe is etched onto at least two of Juventus' Scudetti. Um, one other, one other note I will make though is um, the, the the rule change after the disgrace of Hihon, which you mentioned there in 1982. They changed the rules in 1986, as you mentioned, for uh, all the, the the last final group games uh, to take place at the same time simultaneously, so to eradicate this kind of behaviour. But we are opening ourselves up for this kind of behaviour in 2026 at the World Cup, where it's expected there will be 16 groups of three in the expanded 48-game tournament. Groups of three make it a much higher risk of this kind of shenanigans going on because obviously the, not all teams can play together because there's three of them at the last, on the last group game. So the two teams who play that last game in the group, they're going to know exactly what results they need to let them advance to the knockout stage. I think we're going to see some Denmark-France-style shenanigans, perhaps, if that um, format is not changed in some way. Joe, any more to add on this question? I think it's kind of an art form to be able to play out a match like uh, like this. I think it takes this level of of smarts, because you've got to play it cool, right? You can't just go out there and be way too lax at the back because you're right. You can't trust the other team. You don't know them. You don't know what they're going to do. you got to play it cool. And so it's just this really <laughs> fine line between... Yeah, like we're not low key, we're not trying at all. And also, no, we are. We're trying. This is a big game. We're respecting this competition. That's why FIFA can't regulate that, right? At least not in any extreme way. They can't judge the intent of the game. And so I think that kind of is what prevents it from just being this everyone sitting down on the field and just passing the ball back and forth for 90 minutes. You can't have that because you can't trust your opponent and you still have to be on edge just enough to straddle that line of making it look somewhat like a soccer game. Yeah, I think you're right there. There is an art form to it. And because Denmark and France, for example, can 
uh, uh, you know, avoid a fine or avoid punishment because you can't prove they weren't like getting the ball to the goal line and kicking it away deliberately so they weren't scoring or anything like that. So it is definitely an art form to to make this kind of balanced game happen. Uh, it is. It is, Ryan. You're absolutely. It's just such a boring, <laughs> like more than anything else, because. It's, it's, I think the way I vision it manifesting is just that you don't have that, it's the World Cup, we've got to win. Get the ball back and play. Everybody's working. Everybody's fighting for everything. It's just slowness. It's the ball goes out. It's, it's an errant shot. And rather than the teammates yelling at the player who shot 20 yards wide, it's just like, yeah, all right, yeah, whatever. It's jogging back into your position. It's the goalkeeper getting the ball and walking back and putting it down and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and then kicking it long. And now everybody listening to this is already falling asleep because that's what happens. It's just a slower game and it's really dull and really boring. And so... It just becomes a really obvious thing, I think, at that point, and and is much more publicly frustrating, I think. It doesn't really lead to action. It doesn't lead to sanctions or points being taken away or anything like that. But I think you're also right, Ryan, that we will probably get more of these sort of weird outcomes once we have unbalanced groups. Indeed, we will. Eyebrows will be raised. People will saying, eyebrows, be saying eyebrows. boo and not boo earns, certainly, uh, when that occurs. There's, there's been, as, as you mentioned, Taylor, there's been a few instances. I was saying boo earns, Ryan. I was, I was saying, saying boo earns. There's a few instances where this has happened in the past. My favorite one of these was um, Euro 84 qualifying, uh, in which Spain got through. They, they could get through above the Netherlands uh, if they got a win with an 11 goal margin. Netherlands had a better margin, <laughs> margin of goal difference by 11 goals. Uh, Spain got a 12-1 win over Malta in that game. Of course they did. Of course they did. Good old Malta. <laughs> so that's a, that was a great question from Matt Cost. Thank you very much. We've got one other question to tackle here from Richard Rolson. The United States has obviously seen an uptick in players capable of moving to Europe and finding success. We've now seen Jesse March as a coach slash manager make the move to Europe and have a level of success that he could move to a bigger club. However, says Richard, I don't see any other American coaches that could make the jump outside of maybe Jim Curtin. Does US soccer and MLS need to do more to develop American coaches? What are things what are the things that need to be done to increase the pool and quality of American coaches? Joseph Lowry, your thoughts. Okay, so first I want to agree with Richard after he said outside of maybe Jim Curtin as being the only American coach that could maybe make that sure. jump. I I kind of agree with that. At first I was kind of recoiling there and going back to look through all the different MLS coaches that are that are in the league right now and trying to find American ones that I would feel confident about moving to a Salzburg-esque job. And Jim Curtin was kind of the only name on my list. Taylor, if you want to fight me on that, that's that's totally fine and we can we can go from there. Nope. Yeah, sure and no. <laughs> it is it's it's pretty small, right? It's pretty small. And that was shocking to me at first. So then to think through the other elements of Richard's question here. What needs to be Joe, done? Can I, while you do that, can I just interject to say, because I know we are going to get some pushback on that, and I think the way you phrase that is why I fully agree with you, because like Bob Bradley is probably capable of coaching in Europe, Swansea experiment aside, but I think to, that's where the distinction of like a Salzburg-esque position, where you have to do so many, so many things to manage a club like Salzburg or a club like Leipzig, that 
not I'm not trying to dismiss what Bradley is doing at, at in Major League Soccer with LAFC at all. It's just that like there's a there's a temperament, there's a disposition, there's a dedication to the work, there's a youthfulness that I think is required. Um, and I think Bob Bradley is is probably pretty content where he is, and you can't really have that contentment if you want to push on to that next level. So that's where I go back to like there are coaches who could maybe do it, but I think the one who could definitely do it for me is Jim Curtin. Well, and actually that's funny because I I kind of misspoke there. I meant to say American coaches that. I I think could make the jump that haven't already coached in a top league in Europe. Gotcha. Cause I gotcha. genuinely think Bob Bradley has all the youthful exuberance you could ever ask for. And I think he would do really well. <laughs> and anger. And, anger. and, and out. Yeah. And, and, and just rage and all of those things that, that scare me sometimes. <laughs> I think he could, I think he could and would excel in a job like that. Maybe Brian Schmetzer as well, but I don't see him moving. And so that's, that's kind of the reason why I didn't include him there. But either yeah. way, even if we include Bob Bradley and Brian Schmetzer along with Jim Curtin, that's still a very small percentage of American coaches, not just at the MLS level, but yeah. really all American coaches at a pro level. So what, what can be done to increase the pool and the quality? The first thing I have is widen the bottom of the pyramid, right? And this is happening right now, but provide more coaching opportunities at more levels. Broaden USL, and they're doing that, thankfully. Jake Edwards and, and USL League One and, and the USL Championship – are constantly expanding and they're growing that league which is then providing more coaching opportunities for american coaches and coaches of other nationalities as well but it it makes it easier to identify talented coaches that maybe wouldn't have even had a real coaching job if usl or usl league one didn't exist at all so i think that's really huge then the other big thing for me make the coaching education process cheaper it's so expensive right now at least for the average person like i've looked into getting my coaching licenses before and it's hundreds of dollars to get the, the first non-grassroots license, yep. to get that D license. It's just, it's not really feasible for people who aren't sure that maybe that's what they want to do, but they're interested in tactics, they're interested in how the game works. It's just not possible unless you have a club sponsoring you, which does happen. But for the average person who is interested in soccer and maybe is on the younger side, it's really not going to happen for them to get involved in this coaching education process. And that's, that's a problem. Yeah, and Joe, Joe, I think has done a good job of explaining the domestic issues. I would also argue that there is a perception issue still, and uh, like unless you kind of have a system background, Marsh with uh, Red Bull New York, it makes sense to have that connection to Red Bull. Like I don't think there are as many European clubs, certainly top five European clubs that are top five leagues, that is, that are going to look to Major League Soccer and see what their coaches are doing and think, yeah, we'll roll the dice with that. I, I think. The answer for, to Richard's question, in addition to everything Joe has said, which was all correct, is that I think it's it's the players now getting older and becoming managers. And that's that will go a long way towards, is Chelsea going to roll the dice on giving Jim Curtin an opportunity? No, but we know they will with former players. So if Christian Pulisic 15 years from now goes into coaching and becomes this sort of like the next up-and-coming pep, do they roll the dice with him, even though he's inexperienced? Maybe. And I think that's what it probably is. Pulisic might be not the best example, but I think veteran players who've played at a high level, uh, veteran American players who've played at a high level who then go into coaching, I think have an automatic leg up on their, their counterparts who came through MLS or USL just because I think there's recognition, there's familiarity, there's networks in place, there's contacts in place. So I think as we have this younger generation as they age out and move into coaching i do think some of those names will end up in bigger positions than they would have if they'd maybe been playing the same roles for the same teams 10 years before to build on that point taylor apologies if this sounds glib but there is the fact that 
the sport in this country as a professional sport is relatively young, right? What's it, 26 years old, Major League Soccer. So it will be the generation after this one and the next one where that sort of thing will happen more often. Maybe we're running before we walk a little bit with this question. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Just, be, I mean, because until, I mean, Major League Soccer are little things, like not winning the CONCACAF Champions League, or at least not in, like, the modern incarnation. Like, you can't claim to be this, like, next-level managerial talent if you're not able to to dominate, like, the competitions that are in front of you, but then there are restrictions in place and roster limitations and salary limitations about why you can't be as competitive, and all that like all of those factors are extenuating circumstances, but if you are a bigger club in Europe looking for an exciting young manager, do you care about those things? Probably not. You see it as like, yeah, we don't have those restrictions in place, so we don't know how this person will do, but we do know how this 28-year-old who managed in the the Bundesliga will do, so we're going to go that route. And I think, yeah, Ryan, you're totally right that once uh, like U.S. soccer continues to cement its it's kind of footprint as we get more coaches uh, succeeding in MLS and then maybe starting to move abroad. And then these players that are having big time careers moving into coaching, the U S maybe does become more of a soccer football nation. Maybe that, that's the big distinction. Uh, and then it's less of an issue just because right now I, I think some clubs are going to see that as like, you're bringing in American. Like I still get that when I say, I like to talk about soccer from Brits. I'll get that like, you, soccer, really? Football? You you like it? Like so, I think there's still that uh, j- just stereotype that exists, and it takes a lot of players doing a lot of big things and a lot of managers doing a lot of big things before it breaks down a bit more. Yeah, and just remember, if Pellegrini and Matarazzo can make it at Stuttgart and Ted Lasso can make it at FC Richmond, yeah. then uh, you know those t- those are good examples of that kind of thing happening. <laughs> Yay, Ted Lasso! Yay! Have you watched it yet? And Leicester and Tottenham. He got gigs, man. Ted Lasso's had gigs. That's true. That's true. I forgot about his start at Tottenham. Yeah, controversial yeah. as it was, his character being very much reinvented after that. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a, the list of questions from Matt and Richard. Thank you very much for submitting those. Just about time to head off into the sunset, but one more note from me as we head into injury time. I want to congratulate Brentford, who've become the yeah. 50th Premier League team. They won the playoff uh, championship uh, final against Swansea 2-0. Ten-man Swansea, that was. They're back in the top flight for the first time since 19. 19- uh, if you'd watch the game, you'll note the commentator saying the curse has lifted. This was Brentford's 10th playoff campaign, their fifth final, and the first one they've actually got through. They were in the ch- uh, playoff final last season as well, and we- they were beaten by Fulham, obviously. Um, so congratulations to Brentford finally making it through, and they've got a brand new stadium, which they've only just started playing games in in front of fans. So very happy to see them in the Premier League and hope they don't suffer the same fate as Fulham. Although... I don't know, guys. It's going to be tough for them. <laughs> <laughs> yep, they got their work cut out for them. But I'm, I'm excited to have a, a new club in the Premier League. Mm. It's always it's always fun to see. And I, I do wonder if, like, Saeed Benrahma, is he going to go back on loan now that they're back in the Premier League? Maybe they'll get some players in there and be just fine. Maybe they'll go right back down. But either way, new blood is always fun. Indeed. Joe, anything to say about Brentford before we head off? Yes. Fun word to important. say. Blood is important. New blood is is also good. We need our bodies to generate new blood. And I will say to uh, to go full nerd here, Brentford have done an awesome job of of recruiting and and using mm. stats and analytics to bring players in that are undervalued and that fit how they want to play. And that's super exciting. I'm excited to dig more into that as August and September approach, and we can look at maybe how they've gotten to where they are right now in some more depth because they've done an incredible job in the championship, and I'm really curious to see if that's going to translate to the top flight in England. 
Yeah, that's definitely right. And they have a, they've got some peculiar systems with, with their B teams and their academies that they've been using, which we can dig into, as you say, Joe, at another time as the new season approaches. I think that just about wraps up the episode for today. Thank you very much, Taylor Rockwell, for joining us with your dulcet tones once again. Right back at you, buddy. Joe Lowry, your tones are also dulcet. Thank you very much. <laughs> you got it, Ryan. Thank you. Bye. Bye.